So now I'm excited for what's going to happen next as we begin a new sermon series. And the focal point of this sermon series is this question. I hope it just continues to echo in your head, echo in your heads. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We talk a lot in the church about believing in Christ. The stereotypical question that we associate with evangelism, whether it's a great gathering at a football stadium or whether it's one-on-one in conversation over coffee, is this. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? But how often do we talk about following Jesus? Lots of people want to know, lots of people want to be sure about what we believe about Jesus. But when's the last time someone ever asked you if you followed Jesus? Beloved, our predominant emphasis in the church for a long, long time has been and continues to be having the right beliefs about Jesus. In our history, there have been many great councils that you probably have heard of or maybe not, like Nicaea, the Nicaean Council, where they were trying to wrestle to straighten out critical misunderstandings about doctrine, about what we believe. And I want to say that this has been good in the life of the church. It's been necessary for the continued health, growth, and unity of the body. But beloved, we also need to realize something. We need to realize that it's possible to believe in Jesus, to believe all the right things about Jesus, and never be confronted with the question of what it means to follow Jesus. Allow me to push us a little further on this. I've I've come to believe more and more, at least in today's church, in the world in which we live today as the church, I've come to believe more and more, and this is a pretty provocative statement. It may even offend some of you, and I apologize. I'm happy to unpack it later if you don't get me right now. But I've come to believe we can be Christians, but not necessarily disciples of Jesus. You may be sitting here, and again, like I said, taken back by that, maybe even a little upset, going, well, but I've been a Christian all my life. My question is, have you been a follower of Jesus all your life? I mean, we know of the criticisms, we know of the critiques of the church. We don't like to hear them, but there's a lot of truth in them and the perceptions of the church. And let me suggest to you that maybe that's part of the problem with the church today. Maybe part of the problem with the church today is that there's lots of Christians, but not a lot of followers of Jesus. There seems to be a huge, and what else do we make of it, gap between the numbers of people in our own nation alone who, when surveyed, profess that they are Christians, and yet a huge disparity between what that looks like lived out in the life of the church. It doesn't look very much like the Jesus that we read about, that we see, that's revealed to us in Scripture. You know, the the reality is, is that Christian is not even a word or a title given to us by Jesus. Christian, for those of us who don't know it, was actually a Roman insult. Early on, when the church was getting started, Christian was a Roman insult to sort of make fun of those who were believed in Jesus. the, The Christian meant little Christs. It was pejorative, it was mocking, and the church adopted this insult to sort of turn it around. And that's great, but it's not a title that's given by Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible will you find Jesus say, be a Christian. Jesus' word is, follow me, be a disciple. That was Jesus' word. And here at Grace, I hope you've noticed in the last couple of years as we've been sort of letting God reveal this to us and kind of following that we are, we're, we're narrowing more and more our focus of that we want to be more than Christians at Grace. More than Christians. We want to be disciples. 
And, and there's been an intentional shift in the direction here. I hope you've seen it, at least in the last year, and in, in some of the things we've been the preaching last year was all about covenant and kingdom. This idea of we have to understand our identity, who we are in God and in Christ, covenant. And out of understanding who we are, whose we are, we understand that there also is a kingdom part of the scriptures, a responsibility. We're image bearers. We reflect the God that we serve, the Christ that we profess to believe in. And I've tried in the last couple of months, and, and, you're, and this is seeping into our community, sort of a purposeful focus on discipleship. I mean, it's, not, a, it's a, not something that was planned, but pointing you, if you're new to this church, you've been here for a while, and you're not comfortable with the word, to get into a Bible study. There's many great ones, but the one here at Grace is called Disciple, of learning how to read and study the scripture so as to follow Jesus. We've pointed many of you. Some of you have gone through it. Some of you haven't been available to Curcio. An extended pilgrimage, a time away that's challenging, that's demanding, but is asking you to not just believe in Jesus, but to follow Jesus. And you've probably heard through the grapevine or have been invited directly about these things called huddles, these, in, these weekly gatherings to just, again, be intentional about focusing, about wrestling with what does it mean to follow Jesus. And in your bulletin, and next week you'll see your bulletin is totally different, you'll even see from the staff and the leadership a new vision and mission statement that's come out of this continual dialogue and prayer, this refocusing. And the vision for grace, and I'm not going to read everything on this page, because over the course of the next few weeks and months, we're going to keep coming back to this, but I'm going to read the vision. Where do we believe God's calling us as a church? And our vision is this, to engage life and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. And so... The mission, the values that you see there, we'll come back to those in the weeks that follow, but that's the vision that we believe God's given us. We're wrestling with the question of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And as Mary Taylor comes forward to read for us from Scripture this morning, we're going to begin that journey, wrestling with this central question through the Gospel of Mark. And so I invite you as she comes up to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, the scripture reading is going to be on page 694 in your pew Bibles. I'm read off the page because the Bibles have small print. <laughs> the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching of baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mary. Gospel of Mark, this is a great place for us to spend some time because one of the things that you'll notice right from the outset is Mark was a disciple of Jesus. John Mark, in fact, is only mentioned eight times in the New Testament. 
Only eight. But his story, what we know of it, is quite impactful. And with a little bit of a pun intended, Mark's name actually means hammer. It's a good Roman name. And at some point in his life, what we know from this account, the hammer struck the rock. And what I mean by that is, you see, Mark was a disciple of Peter. Mark was a disciple of Jesus by way of being a disciple of Peter, the rock. We're not sure how they met, but we do know that Peter knew where Mark lived. Do you remember that story in Acts? Do you remember that fascinating story when Peter gets arrested and he's in jail and all of a sudden he basically walks through the prison cell because an angel lets him out and Mark gets out and we're told in Acts, he thinks about where he's going to go next and the first place that comes to his mind is to go to Mark's house. Actually, it's Mark's mother's house, Mary, her large two-story house in Jerusalem where Peter ends up. It's kind of cool just as an aside to think that Mark's house was possibly the location of the very first church plant. And somehow in that context, what we know is Mark became Peter's companion. Mark became a follower of Peter. In fact, Mark stayed by Peter's side until his death. In one of his final letters, Peter refers to Mark as my son. But the the point, the most important point of all, is Mark's relationship with Peter led him to an even greater and deeper relationship with Jesus. And we know this because he wrote this gospel This account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's so cool about Mark's gospel is Mark's gospel reflects Mark's view of Jesus by way of Peter. It reflects the perspective of his spiritual father, Peter, how Peter heard Jesus. Beloved, Mark, through his gospel, is teaching us how to listen to Jesus. But we actually get more than that. We not only get the perspective of a disciple of Jesus, of Peter's account of how things happened, what's even cooler is we also are able to get the experience the experience the viewpoint of a disciple of a disciple of Jesus looking through Mark's eyes we glean the effect of discipleship on another person how Mark learned to listen to Jesus through Peter another fascinating thing about Mark and it's not always that we can say this about the people we find in the New Testament but another fascinating thing about Mark that also makes this gospel very appealing is that he wasn't associated only with Peter. Oftentimes in the New Testament, it's with Peter or with Paul. Mark is the exception because Mark, if you don't know this, was the cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas was one of the first missionaries of the church. Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas on a famine relief trip as well as their first missionary journey. And if you know this story, you also know that Mark abruptly and without explanation, at least no explanation that we're given, leaves Barnabas and Paul in the middle of their trip on the mission field in Perga just as they're about to head into the mountains. And if you know how this story turns out, the aftershock of this is that Paul basically says, I'm not working with Mark again. But Barnabas never doubts him. Barnabas takes his cousin under his wing. And there's a good end to this story. In scripture, Mark later regains Paul's trust. And in the same way that he worked closely with Peter, Mark actually works closely with Paul till the end of his life. And and part of why I'm sharing this with you about the background of Mark's gospel is that maybe part of the reason why we tend to separate being a Christian from being a disciple, maybe part of the reason why we we don't like to think about discipleship or following Jesus is because maybe we're intimidated by that call to discipleship. 
Maybe we struggle with this idea of following Jesus and we struggle with this idea that we're not strong enough or we're not competent enough to follow Jesus or to help other people follow Jesus. We might even question our own character. And what I want you to see, beloved, and hold on to this as we go through Mark, is that this is a gospel written by one flawed follower sharing the perspective of another flawed follower. You can count how many times Peter's going to put his foot in his mouth by his own account through Mark. Both of these men represent for us, and it's an encouragement, people who had bumps along the way, learning curves in following Jesus, just in the same way that we do and we will. The existence of this gospel, I think, is a reminder of the restoring grace of God. Because Mark, what he'll point to again and again and again is that it's not, if we follow Jesus, following Jesus, being a disciple, it's not about us. It's about him. And when you read Mark, you can't help but notice this emphasis in his gospel. I mean, I hope all of you know that each of the gospels, the four of them, they begin in a different way. If you're not familiar, haven't looked in a while, Matthew begins with a genealogy where he wants to identify Jesus as the one promised to Abraham and to David by God. Luke begins with a short introduction where he wants to share with us his research methodology of how he put all this together. John begins with a mysterious but wonderful poem about creation that he somehow wants to link with Christ. In some respects, the other three Gospels are very much have an agenda, a way they're trying to frame the story. Matthew wants to speak to the Jewish perspective about Jesus. Luke wants to speak to the Gentile perspective, to the non-Jews. But Mark has none of this. Mark never mentions his credentials. Mark doesn't even mention his own name. Mark doesn't tell us the story of Jesus' birth. Mark doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' childhood. Mark wastes no time. You heard Mary read it. He wastes no time telling us what the story he is writing is about. If you have your Bible open, it's right there in front. If you don't, open back up to Mark chapter 1. When The first words that Mark has for us are, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the thing. Our lives are busy. Everyone in this room, I know your life is busy. We're all, I hope, hope are moving forward. We got things to do, people to see, places to go. And when you're moving at a clip, when your life is full, seriously, it's hard for things to grab your attention. The op- op- optimum question is why pay attention? Why change direction? Because you're just moving with a full head of steam. And Mark, right from the get-go, is telling us why. Because this is the final promise of God in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the opening of the New Testament. In the beginning, the beginning that Mark is talking about is is more than simply the launch of the story he's telling. The beginning for Mark harkens back to in the beginning. For Mark, this is another Genesis event. The old order of things is passing away. Everything is being made new. The beginning is the end and the end is the beginning. And this, for Mark, is good news. This is gospel. Did you know that Mark's the only writer to specifically refer to his work by that term, gospel, good news? Matthew and Luke will use the word, but they'll never refer back to their own writings as such. And it's important to understand why Mark highlights this, good news, gospel for us. Because in our language today, we rarely associate good news, those two words, with gospel truth. 
We hear the term good news, those two words in our daily lives, and those two words are usually heard in a sentence like this. Well, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. The good news is, is no one was seriously hurt in that car accident. The bad news is, is the car is totaled. The good news is, I found that recipe. The bad news is, we're out of flour. In our day-to-day lives, we use those two simple words, good news, to talk about comical things in our lives, mundane things in our lives, as well as sometimes important things. We use these words, these two words, good news, so much that, that for us they can become associated with the ordinary, with the normal, maybe even commonplace things. But in a way that we can't relate to, but that we need to see as we start, is that the use of the word gospel, the use of the two words good news by Mark, captures the attention of a Roman listener. You see, in the first century Roman Empire, of which Israel was an occupied region, the term good news, gospel, had a special connotation. The word was used exclusively for propaganda about the empire, usually about the Roman emperor himself. Good news, the emperor has won a victory in Gaul. Good news, the emperor's wife has given birth to a son and he will be your next ruler. Good news, The emperor has had another birthday. Long live the emperor. Back then, gospel was a common term connected to news reports about the might of Rome, the power and reach of the emperor. The Roman propaganda machine churned out these ancient press releases, not just to keep the people informed, but to keep the people in line. You see, when the emperor acts, when the might of Rome is proclaimed, the people are to celebrate. It's good news. And just in case you're hesitant to celebrate, make no mistake, the strong arm of the Roman military will ensure that all conquered lands and occupied countries don't forget to throw the party, let alone foot the bill. So when Mark proclaims his own gospel is the good news about Jesus, he's making a statement A very provocative and defining statement. From the outset, Mark is letting us know that the good news that Jesus and his followers proclaim is a stark challenge to the ruling order of the day. It's the declaration of a historical event, event, absolutely, but it's a historical event that will change the course of history. It is the announcement of something so new and unexpected that it will transform life as we know it, and that'll turn heads. That'll make you stop in your tracks. That'll catch you as you're moving forward to realize this is worth paying attention to. It's a cause for celebration, but it's one that derives from a bold statement about who's really in charge and where real power is to be found. The good news is the marvelous effect of the life, death, and resurrection of the main character. And Mark doesn't waste any time in telling us the name and identity of that person at the end of this verse, Jesus Christ the Son of God. Right from the start, right from verse one, Mark tells us who Jesus is. Mark doesn't just tell us why we should follow. Mark tells us who we are following. Jesus is the Christ. Christos, a Greek term meaning anointed royal figure. Another way of referring to Jesus as the long and promised expected Messiah as the one who would come and administer God's rule on earth and in particular rescue Israel from her oppressors. Mark is telling us that we are following Jesus as king, not a king, the king, the Messiah, 
In fact, if you want a great way to think about the Gospel of Mark, the first eight chapters, the way that Mark sets it up, the first eight chapters of Mark, the first half of his Gospel are all about unfolding this first revelation that he gives us about Jesus. The first eight chapters are just laying out how Jesus is the Messiah. It all comes to one grand finale at the end of chapter eight when Peter finally confesses this truth. When Peter will say, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But from the outset, Mark wants us to understand that Jesus isn't just our Savior. He is that, but Jesus is also the Lord. Jesus isn't just the Messiah, he's the Son of God. And and, and understand something here, beloved. This is a claim of outright divinity by Mark. I get tired when people say, well, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that Jesus is God. Really, open up to Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark just lays it out there. Mark doesn't start his gospel by quoting any prophets. He specifically is quoting prophets like Isaiah. And the prophecy that he's quoting is a passage about preparing the way of the Lord. So Mark's making a clear and explicit connection here. If the way being prepared is for the Lord, and if Jesus is the one who's going to follow on that way, then Jesus is the Lord God Almighty himself. And again, just like the first half of Mark's gospel are this unfolding of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, chapters 9 through 13, the latter part of Mark's gospel we're going to see, are all about Mark unfolding to us, taking this revelation about Jesus as the Son of God to the next level. And nowhere is this more dramatically stated than near the very end at the foot of the cross when a Roman centurion states upon the death of Christ, truly this man was the son of God. And all of this will lead us after that to the, at the very end of Mark's gospel to stand with a bunch of other people, women in fact, outside an empty tomb and we'll be invited to answer for ourselves, who is Jesus? And more pointedly, in that moment, we will be challenged in light of our answer to follow him beyond the grave into resurrection life, into kingdom living. That's where we're going. That's where we'll end up. But for now, what you heard Mary read, what Mark gives us is he spends the rest of these opening verses letting us know how we begin to follow Jesus. And we begin to start following Jesus by knowing that the way of discipleship, the road we travel on to follow, has already been prepared for us. Please let that sink in for a second. Mark wants us to know following Jesus begins by realizing that the road has been prepared for us. We don't have to find the path. We don't have to look for the signs. We don't have to ask for directions because John the Baptist has prepared the way. The first voice we hear in Mark is not even Mark. It's Malachi. Mark quotes the last book of the Old Testament The prophet Malachi's veiled foretelling of the coming, not of Jesus, but of John the Baptist. And Mark aligns the words of Malachi and Isaiah with John the Baptist. He's he's doing this because, again, in a way that we can't appreciate, there's a context he's trying to establish that would make sense in his day that that would be lost in ours. You see, 
These Old Testament references from Malachi and Isaiah are prophecy, but they also have sort of a cultural significance because back in the day when John the Baptist was on the scene, when Mark was writing these words, when a royal visitor was about to arrive at a location, he would send ahead of him a messenger to tell the people that an important person was due to arrive. That messenger was sent so the people would prepare for the ruler's arrival by tidying up the streets by making provision for his entourage and by appearing impressed by him. John the Baptist, Mark wants us to understand, follows in this tradition. John is the forerunner. He's the one who prepares us for the coming of the king. Initially, before Jesus even arrives on the scene, we haven't even seen Jesus yet. That's gonna be next week. Initially, before Jesus arrives on the scene, John the Baptist is giving us the roadmap for following Jesus. We learn how to begin following Jesus from John's example and his instruction. So based upon what we learn here from John, what does it mean to be a disciple, to follow Jesus? According to John the Baptist, the very first step of discipleship the very first step of discipleship is simply this, repentance. Repentance. It actually makes sense if you stop and think about it. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of what Mark is trying to say that John's all about. John is calling us to stop. We are so busy. We are so going, going, going. And John is saying, stop. Stop and think about the good news, the beginning the Christ, the Son of God. And if you stop and think, you cannot help but repent. Because if you're preparing for the one who is coming to forgive your sins, if that's what you expect, if you're preparing for the one who's coming to save you, if you're preparing for the one who is the creator of the universe, the Lord of all, then the only thing that makes sense is to come clean and lay it all on the table. In other words, the first step of discipleship, according to John, is actually realizing and confessing that you are going the wrong way. The first step of discipleship is you and I accepting that we're not the leader. It means turning back around. It means coming back home. Discipleship begins by making a hard reverse from going the wrong way and heading in the right direction. It means taking your hands off the wheel of your life, moving over and giving the keys of your life back to God. Beloved, this morning, who's in charge of your life? Don't just give me the, 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 the Bible church answer. Seriously, stop, think, reflect, Who's in charge of your life? Who's driving? If you're like me, I have just an annoying tendency that I don't like to be a passenger. I am not a good passenger. Problem is, I'm not a good driver either. <laughs> you know that's true. <laughs> Who's driving? Are you leading in your life? Or are you following? Are you leading in your life or are you first following? And be careful. I know all of us just go, yes, yes, yes. Be careful. Be certain how you answer because for John, John the Baptist, repentance involves action. Think about it. Back in the day when John is preaching this message, one of the things Mark wants us to see, John is preaching to an audience who had a good grasp of Old Testament teaching. They went to worship on a regular basis. They knew their Bibles. They were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Think about that. 
John wasn't preaching to a bunch of people who did not know, who were uninformed. These were people who had the information. Most of them did not need new information about God and his purpose. They knew all of that. What they needed was a correct response to the information they had already possessed. And that correct response, according to John, was repent. Repentance. Beloved, in a similar way today, there are lots of us who attend church on a regular basis. Lots of us who've gone to many, 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 many Bible studies, Bible colleges. We have tons of information about Jesus. Lots of us who identify ourselves as Christians. But what's missing is the relationship of trust, of actually following our self-professed leader, becoming disciples of Jesus. Believing in Christ is so important, but believing in Christ does not necessarily make any demands on a person. I can believe with the Nicene Creed. I can say to you, I believe with the Nicene Creed that Jesus is begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And I can and should believe this truth about Jesus Christ. But believing it is not the same thing as following the object, the person behind this proposition. So be careful how you answer. Because for John... This is no time for a half-hearted commitment. This is no time for mere lip service of what you believe. That just won't do anymore. The time is now to get in the water, to go deep, to come clean. You actually have to stop and turn around. For John, just to make this, drive this point home even more for, as Mark presents it, for John, repentance needs to be a visible action. I mean, obviously it would be possible for people to prepare secretly for the arrival of Jesus back then, for people to prepare secretly. It's not only possible then, it's a living reality now. We have lots of Christians who are secretly preparing for Jesus to come back. But John declares that will not do. It is not okay to be, for it to be a secret. It is not okay for it to be private. You need to go public about your allegiance. And going public isn't about going into the wilderness. Going public isn't even about getting into the water. For John, the visible act of repentance, of preparing ourselves to follow Jesus, is most revealed through the shift in how we live and how we speak. In other words, our lifestyle should match our mission. Our lifestyle should match our mission. Does it? Does your lifestyle match your mission? John's did. It's kind of hard for us to see that with John because the picture that we get in Mark and the other Gospels, the picture that's painted of John, we go, that guy was a wild man. He was crazy. Did you read what he wore? Did you read about what he eats? So we get so focused on his attire and his diet that he's crazy that we miss that, yes, indeed, John is presented by Mark and the other Gospel writers as countercultural. But that's the point. Those are all reflections of a deeper truth about John that John reflected in his lifestyle his dependency upon God. John's lifestyle matched his mission. John walked the talk. There was consistency between what he said he believed and how he lived his life. And beloved, John is a model for followers to copy. Not in the sense of wearing the same clothes, don't go out and get your camel suit, don't go out and get those locusts with honey. Try that out. 
John is not a model to copy in the sense of the same clothes or eating the same food. John's a model for us to copy in the sense of ensuring that observers, people who see us, recognize the world we're living for. People, when they see us, recognize the one we're following. Beloved, can anyone tell who you follow? Can anyone tell the world you're living for? And if they can tell, is it consistent with what you say you believe? Like John, is the message of our lives compelling yet directive? We hear it. Mark tells us people were drawn to John. They were drawn to John in large numbers. They traveled out of their way to get to him. And this is because it literally jumps off the page. John's manner and talk were charged with the Holy Spirit. There was an identifiable, attractive power at work in John. And beloved, this is the gift of Pentecost for us. This is when we talked about covenant and kingdom. God doesn't just put us out here and say, hey, go represent me, follow me, but do it in your own strength. Do it in your own charisma. God provides his spirit. He empowers us and we reflect him. We follow him through his own authority and power. Just like John. Do people see that? Is the message of our lives compelling? Do people see that identifiable, attractive power at work in us? But it's more than just being compelling. It's about being directive because John drew people in by the message of his life. But when people heard John, Mark tells us, when people heard John, they didn't see the messenger at the expense of the message. John expressed his understanding of himself in a humble manner. Humble manner. He did not point to himself as the messenger. He pointed to the message. And this is hugely significant because in case you don't know, John the Baptist was kind of a big deal. I mean, John the Baptist was kind of a big deal. John the Baptist, let's just briefly review. John the Baptist will later be told is Elijah. And for, for decades, centuries, there was the waiting for the return of Elijah. And John has said, that's it. That's, this is the Elijah you were waiting for. Jews today who don't accept Christ are still waiting for Elijah. They still have a chair set aside for Elijah. But here in the scriptures, they point to John and they say, that's Elijah. John is the object of a huge prophecy. John is the product of a miraculous birth. His parents were barren, old, aged, not able to have kids. John is the voice. John is the messenger, the announcer of a new order. He's the emissary of the greatest kingdom on earth. So can we all just step back for a second and say that if anyone had reason for a little pomp and circumstance, if anyone had room for a little ego, if anyone had a right to a little strut in his step, a little pride and prejudice, it's John. J-Bap. <laughs> but that's not the picture we're given to John. The artist formerly known as John the Baptist shall now be J-Bap. <laughs> that's not the picture we're given of John. Mark says that John's manner, his walk and his talk, were the exact opposite. John's manner, his walk and his talk, were that of radical humility. How radical? So radical that John will say when people are looking at the messenger and missing the message, John will say that the task of loosening sandals is not even something he could do for the one he's preparing the way for. And just to give us some context for this, to understand what John is saying, back in his day, the task of loosening the sandals of another person was performed by the lowliest of slaves. The low guy on the totem pole, who, the guy who got the shortest end of the stick, you get to unloosen sandals. 
But John doesn't even claim that right when it comes to Jesus. John's whole disposition, how he carried himself, exalts his master. There's no mistaking. Mark wants us to see who John was following. How about us? Is there any mistaking who you're following? Are people getting a double message? Are they confused? Are they totally missing it? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Beloved, we can sing how great is our God. We can sing it every Sunday. We can sing it in our car. We can have it embroidered in our living rooms. But does our demeanor, how we live and interact with others convey, not in a self-righteous or arrogant way, but in a humble and deflective way, pointing away from ourselves, does our demeanor, how we live and interact with each other, proclaim how great is our God? What a friend we have in Jesus. This is just the first eight, first eight verses. Beloved, Mark is getting us ready for the journey of a lifetime. And right from the get-go, we come back next week, Mark is going to invite us into the action. Come next week, he's going to just point to Jesus with John the Baptist and say, follow him. And in Mark's gospel, you'll soon find out if you haven't been here in a while, Jesus hits the ground running and never looks back. You'll quickly notice, you can almost like circle it how many times it happens, Mark has this, this tendency to use the word immediately a lot. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And this is Mark's way of emphasizing that Jesus is on the move and if we're committed to following him, we better keep up. We better keep up. But for right now, Mark is offering us some good news and some bad news. Which one do you want first? The bad news, that's what I thought. <laughs> the bad news is there is still so much brokenness in this world. So many places where God's kingdom seems so far away. The bad news is that over the centuries, we have simplified discipleship in a way that doesn't resonate with the description given to us by someone like Mark. The bad news is we've become so focused on making Christians on calling people to come to Christ to get a better life, that we've lost the invitation and challenge of discipleship, the truth that Jesus called men and women to follow him in order that they might lay down their lives for the gospel and for the kingdom. That's the bad news. But there's also good news. And the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is greater than all the bad news. The beginning. Real quick, let's stop, think about that for a second because something I didn't mention before but I just can't let it go. And why does Mark need to tell us that we're reading the beginning of the story when we're obviously reading the beginning of the story? I mean, I don't mean to edit another guy's work but duh. It's the start. Really? I didn't know that. I'm on the first line. It's the start? Really? The answer is that for Mark, his whole entire gospel is the beginning of the good news. But the rest of the story is played out in our lives. At the beginning is where all followers of Jesus Christ down through the centuries come in. 
Jesus lived the beginning of the good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down the story of that beginning. But you and I are characters in the middle of that same story that began over 2,000 years ago. You and I are players in the unfolding drama of this good news. You and I have taken up the narrative of the gospel that God continues to tell through our lives. Don't just believe it. Live it. Because as we learned earlier, that the beginning of that good news is a gutsy. It's gutsy. It's an, it's an implicit challenge to the ruling order of the day. The ruling order that Mark was speaking of was the Roman Empire, and specifically he was speaking of a Roman Empire that proclaimed its dominance through the declaration of what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You want to know the might of Rome? It's the peace of Rome that demonstrates the might of Rome. But the ugly side of that story, as we know if we remember our history, is it was a peace accomplished through conquest, coercion, occupation, and fear. And why that matters is because the order of our world, the empires of our age, haven't changed that much today. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has replaced the so-called peace that the world gives with a peace that only he can provide. And it's a peace unlike any peace that the world has ever known. Jesus' own good news is the peace established not through conquest, but through sacrifice. It is not the peace established through force, but grounded in love. It is not the peace that occupies and destroys. It is the peace that heals and brings hope. It is the peace that promises not defeat, but resurrection and eternal life in Christ in the face of sin, death, and the devil. Beloved, the good news is that it's not too late to experience that peace in your own life. It's not too late to share that peace with others. It's not too late. The way is still being prepared for us. We can repent. We can turn our lives around and get moving and still follow Jesus. The good news is like John the Baptist, like Peter and Mark after him, we can, with God's help, challenge the ruling order of our day and bring the wholeness of Christ's kingdom to those broken places. The good news is that we are bearers of this gospel, messengers of this good news to conquered peoples and occupied lands that do not know, that have not heard, that are waiting to see the light that shatters the darkness. The good news is the story isn't over yet. Not for us and not for the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.